You're listening to the Curious About Cannabis podcast. The endocannabinoid system, it's a buzzword that excites a lot of people. Words like homeostasis and self-healing often get tossed about when the ECS is brought up. Marketing materials for cannabis products often like to invoke references to the endocannabinoid system to describe what they do, often using terms like endocannabinoid system activation or realignment or balance. When taught by many well-intentioned educators, including clinicians, the endocannabinoid system is often summarized as cannabinoid receptors, endocannabinoids, and their enzymes. But when we take a closer look at the science, a much more complicated picture emerges. Last season, we explored some of the history of the endocannabinoid system and the science around the ECS. We briefly touched on the idea that the modern concept of the ECS is rapidly expanding. Today, some of the world's most renowned endocannabinoid researchers are talking about a bigger system to capture all of this complexity. The endocannabinoidome. This notion of the endocannabinoidome takes us far beyond cannabis and cannabinoids to uncover new mysteries about the roles that endocannabinoids and their mediators play in our health, and this concept of the endocannabinoidome is changing the way we view hundreds of other components of the body that we've known about for nearly a hundred years or more. So put your thinking caps on as we get ready to dive into the wildly complex world of the endocannabinoidome. The Curious About Cannabis podcast is produced by Natural Learning Enterprises, a mission-driven company dedicated to enhancing critical thinking skills and public scientific literacy about life in the natural world. If you like Curious About Cannabis, consider checking out some of these other learning initiatives by Natural Learning Enterprises. Come on, Molly! It'll be an adventure! Phoebe called out as she followed Brother Toadstool. Brother Toadstool led Phoebe and Molly into a tunnel that went deep down into the ground. As they climbed into the tunnel, they found themselves getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Our new children's book, A Toadstool's Treasures, takes young readers on an adventure into the fun and fascinating world of fungi. Learn more and find mycology-related learning resources, games, and lesson plans for teachers and homeschooling families at toadstoolstreasures.com. Biodiversity loss due to habitat loss and fragmentation is rapidly increasing around the world with devastating consequences. Learn how you can help contribute to native habitat corridors in your community and reconnect with your wild neighbors at gardenwild.org. Oregon recently became the first state in the United States to legalize the medical use of psilocybin. As cities all over the country begin to decriminalize the use of entheogenic plants and fungi, it's time to have a serious discussion about psychedelics. The Serious About Psychedelics limited series podcast is coming soon. Learn more at SeriousAboutPsychedelics.com. You can learn more about Natural Learning Enterprises at naturaledu.com.
And now, back to the show. When researchers wanted to understand how THC-rich cannabis affected the body, they discovered that cannabinoids from the cannabis plant interacted with chemical receptors in our bodies, which were termed cannabinoid receptors. After these receptors were found, the hunt was on for endogenous compounds produced by the body that interact with these newly discovered chemical receptors. The endocannabinoid system is a relatively new concept, first proposed in 1998 by endocannabinoid researcher Vincenzo DiMarzo in collaboration with other notable cannabis researchers like Raphael Mashulam. Since the 1990s, research into the endocannabinoid system has exploded. Even the United States federal government recognizes the value of endocannabinoid research as they offer grants to researchers that want to study it, and the National Institutes of Health regularly meets to share progress on endocannabinoid research. In the early 2010s, researchers began piecing together this bigger picture that they referred to as the endocannabinoid dome. The endocannabinoid dome is currently thought to consist of hundreds of ligands, or signaling molecules, and at least dozens of receptor targets and a whole host of enzymes. It's a very big and multivariate system that extends much further than our initial conception of the endocannabinoid system. In this episode, we're going to be diving into this concept of the endocannabinoid dome to try to understand its implications. And to guide our curious quest, we'll be tackling several primary questions. One, what is the endocannabinoid dome and how was it discovered? Two, how does the endocannabinoid dome influence physiological functioning and health? And three, what does the future of endocannabinoid dome research look like? And so without further ado, let's get started. So how did this concept of the endocannabinoid dome come about? Let's very briefly review what we covered in last season's episode about the history of the endocannabinoid system. Cannabinoid receptors weren't discovered until the mid to late 1980s. For the longest time, researchers thought there might not even be a cannabinoid receptor. It was actually proposed that maybe cannabinoids exerted their effects by manipulating enzymes or cellular membranes without actually interacting with the receptor. However, in the 1980s, a researcher named Elin Howlett and her team discovered that a synthetic cannabinoid that they had been gifted from Pfizer, actually, binded to a receptor in the body. They worked to isolate the receptor, and this chemical receptor was even tentatively named Howlett's receptor, before it was later dubbed the cannabinoid type 1 receptor, or as we often refer to it today, the CB1 receptor. Shortly after that, the CB2 receptor was discovered. Once these cannabinoid receptors were discovered, Researchers then began hunting for the endogenous ligands that associated with these receptors. Contrary to some of the messaging floating around about the endocannabinoid system, there's really no evidence that humans evolved to consume cannabinoids from the cannabis plant. Just because we have cannabinoid receptors in our body, that doesn't mean that they're there just because there are cannabinoids in a plant. What's far more likely is that the body produces those receptors because there's some compound in the body that the body makes that interacts with those receptors. And because chemical receptors tend to be rather promiscuous, 
meaning that they are stimulated by a wide variety of compounds of somewhat similar structure, rather than sort of the lock and key model that we often are presented in school that kind of gives the impression that a chemical receptor is designed for a particular key. Uh, that's not really the case. And the endogenous receptors in our bodies can be manipulated by exogenous compounds from plants or fungi because they're similar enough in structure to the endogenous ligands that our bodies produce to interact with those receptors directly. We don't make the assumption, for instance, that just because we have nicotinergic receptors in the body that we must then need to consume nicotine from plants. The same idea holds true with cannabinoids. Now, while it is true that there are chemical receptors in the body that are called orphan receptors, because an endogenous ligand hasn't been discovered for them yet, most researchers agree that with the proper tools and methods of analysis, most, if not all, orphaned receptors will someday be de-orphaned, meaning that we will someday find endogenous compounds that the body makes that interact with those receptors. In the early 1990s, researchers found that a compound in pig brains was binding to CB1. They eventually identified and later synthesized this compound that they would later name anandamide. And shortly after that, they would also discover another endocannabinoid called 2-AG, or 2-arachidonoglycerol. Once these endocannabinoids were identified, well then researchers wanted to understand what were the enzymes that were building these compounds in the body and how are they getting broken down. And this leads us to the late 90s. It was 1998 when endocannabinoid researcher Vincenzo de Marzo published a paper characterizing this group of endogenous cannabinoids, cannabinoid receptors, and the basic enzymes responsible for building and breaking down those endocannabinoids. And he referred to it as a single system called the endocannabinoid system. This is around the same time that Dr. DeMarzo and colleagues also published a separate paper identifying some strange activity they noticed while they were studying 2-AG they ended up calling entourage effects. And it was pretty much around this time that our modern conceptions of cannabinoid science were born. But it turns out they're really due for some major updating. When I spoke to Dr. Ethan Rousseau for season one of the podcast, we spoke about the ever-widening conception of the endocannabinoid system. Right. Well, yeah, no, it's a broadening concept. Um, I asked my friend and colleague, Vincenzo De Marzo, mm -hmm. whether he now would consider the serotonin 1A receptor mm -hmm. part of the endocannabinoid system. And his, he didn't hesitate. He said, yes. How this comes into play is uh, cannabidiol, uh, was shown by uh, my team at the University of Montana back in 2005. Uh, to, cannabidiol is a serotonin 1A mm -hmm. agonist. Um, and we're finding that that mechanism explains a lot of activity of cannabidiol as well as its effect on mm -hmm. nausea, um, prevention of brain damage from uh, ammonia levels in hepatic failure mm -hmm. and a lot of other mechanisms. Another example would be cannabidiol is also an agonist, a, a stimulant on the TRPV1 mm -hmm. receptor, yeah. the same place where capsaicin works. And again, most experts consider that part of the broad concept of the endocannabinoid system. So uh, 
what's amazing to me at this point is for a system that's so fundamental mm -hmm. to how our bodies work, this is not <laughs> in general taught in medical yep. school. Yeah. Uh, you know, somebody can go through medical school and learn nothing about cannabis or except perhaps it's a alleged addiction potential. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, it's highly likely they won't learn anything about the endocannabinoid system, despite the fact that CB1 is the most abundant <laughs> G-protein coupled receptor in the brain, exceeding uh, the number of all the neurotransmitter receptors yep. put together. Uh, so obviously, it's really fundamental to how humans work. One thing that Dr. Rousseau and I didn't touch on is that beyond anandamide and 2-AG, there are other endocannabinoids that have been studied. Some of the best understood of these compounds are things like nolidin ether, verotamine, and inarachidonal dopamine, or NADA. These novel endocannabinoids are not well understood, but there are other endocannabinoid compounds that are even less understood than these. Another thing that we didn't mention in our discussion was that endocannabinoids and cannabinoid receptors perform different functions depending on where they're located. So, as I've mentioned before, endocannabinoids act locally on demand, meaning that they're produced when they're needed, and they generally only affect the immediately surrounding cells or tissues. The consequence of this is that there are essentially a vast series of miniature endocannabinoid systems all throughout the body. But that's only the beginning of how complex things get when it comes to endocannabinoids. The concept of the endocannabinoid dome came up again in my interview with the Doctors Knox at the very beginning of this year. The Doctors Knox are a family of physicians based out of Portland, Oregon, that all specialize in cannabis and cannabinoid medicine. I think the basic endocannabinoid system and its different components, that's pretty basic. What I am more excited about is finally figuring out that it's just bigger than the ECS and how many yes, yes. things that are interacting at the same time are in parallel. You know, each system of the body actually has its own endocannabinoid system and they're all communicating with each other to keep the body in balance. But with that being said, that, that system is just a, a part of a bigger lipid signaling system. And I think when we really figure that out, what that is and how complex it is and get through it, then we're really going to be able to change health. So when you think about THC, it doesn't just work on that CB1, CB2 receptor, right? Right. It's working on other things as well, as are the endogenous cannabinoids. It's working on other things as well. So it's a much more complicated picture than we realize. And that deep dive to try to understand more than, than what we see, what we know at this point, is what's going to lead us to make more effective drugs and therapies, mm -hmm. I mean, novel things that really will answer questions even more than just addressing the conventional description of the endocannabinoid system. That's my realization of what I'm finding out. It's, big, it's bigger than that even. You know, a, a prime example of that is all the attention and research that's now going toward the gut you know, brain mm. ECS axes that is just, it's profound because that gut actually helps to create some of those endocannabinoids when that system is working properly. But no one thought about that before. So all these things are becoming to realization that it's just bigger than CB1, CB2, anandamide, and 2-AG. 
I mean, if that's all you understand, you're at the you're at the starting line, right? Yeah. You got to go beyond that because it's it's huge, and that makes the sky the limit as far as what we can create and do with wellness. I wanted to learn more about this new concept at the endocannabinoid dome, but I wanted to go to someone that was directly studying this system. So, who better than Dr. Vincenzo DiMarzo himself? You know, with the word dome, now we, we make new words containing the, 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 the prefix, the suffix ohm, uh, to identify a very large system. Um, so we have the genome, we have the metabolome, we have the proteome, and so on and so forth. So the, the, endo, the endocannabinoidome um, came in a way from, uh, you mentioned before the, the, the study that uh, Rafi Meshulam, in which we collaborated, collaborated on the entourage effect. So basically what Rafi perceived is that uh, and what we were measuring, in fact, uh, when we were measuring endocannabinoids, is that this, these two molecules, anandamide and 2-HG, were accompanied by, uh, by a plethora of other uh, compounds. And these compounds, these metabolites, were chemically and biochemically similar, uh, meaning that uh, the, you know, anandamide and 2-HG belong to two different families of metabolites. And these are the N-acyletanolamines and the, and the, the monoacylglycerols. Some of which were already in, known, in fact, even one or two decades, or even longer than that, uh, before the endocannabinoids were discovered. So, uh, but nobody knew really how these molecules were acting. So, Rafi, uh, in a very imaginative way, that this is really uh, his, his main feature, his creativity and imagination, uh, thought, well, these these are accompanying uh, molecules that are there to protect, to, to make, make the two big actors look even more important than they are. So it's an entourage. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, when politicians go around <laughs> and, and they take with them a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, accompanying people. And that, that's certainly part of the, of the picture. But that, then we started realizing that these compounds, in fact, do have uh, molecules, uh, uh, do have targets of their own. So... The endocannabinoidome, if you wish, is, is a kind of evolution uh, of, the, of the entourage effect. Um, molecules like the anosylatolamines or the monosylglycerol started being investigated. Receptors were being found. And, and this created, of course, exciting but also complications. Uh, yes. Because, you know, the, the, the pharmacologists and the, the drug developers were... Uh, the therapeutic drug developers were, were thinking, okay, we can we can uh, manipulate the levels of the end since they are so strongly involved in pathology. We can manipulate the levels of the endocannabinoids of anandamide and 2-AG uh, in order to make more of these compounds where they're needed, or to reduce the amount their amounts where they're produced in an excessive uh, manner. So, so you can do that by manipulating the, the, the degradation or the biosynthesis of, of endocannabinoids. But then. When it was found that, uh, and we found, we and many others, that anandamide has the same biochemical pathways as other N-acylatonolamines, which have different receptors from the cannabinoid receptors, mm -hmm. uh, this created a strong complication. We cannot really manipulate the levels of anandamide in this way without manipulating the levels of the other previously uh, uh, known as entourage compounds, but having an identity and, and, and the mechanism of action of, of uh, independent from the endocannabinoids of their own. So the endocannabinoidome is basically 
the, uh, the, the bigger system, including not only an andamide and 2AG and, uh, and their main receptors, which are CB1, CB2, but also some of the other receptors for an andamide and 2AG, because these are two very promiscuous molecules, unlike THC. This is one major difference from between, uh, between the endocannabinoids and the plant cannabinoids, uh, or at least between, uh, between the endocannabinoids and THC. Uh, and then uh, it, it was found that, in fact, even the biosynthesis and degradation of, of these two compounds could not be only uh, mediated uh, by one or two enzymes. There was a redundancy of, of biosynthetic and degrading enzymes. And, and sometimes the degrading enzymes were not degrading enzymes because they were simply converting anandamide and 2-AG into molecules which had different receptors. And this is, you know, this is uh, this may seem strange, but not to people like uh, like me who have investigated uh, bioactive lipids uh, all their life. You know, all, all bioactive lipids are transformed into something different and come from something different with a different biological activity. So. Uh, and then there is the congeners of anandamide and 2-AG, what we called uh, previously the entourage compounds, which uh, have their own receptors, even though they share with the endocannabinoids the same biosynthetical uh, pathways. When Dr. DiMarzo refers to congeners, what he's referring to are these compounds that are very similar in structure to endocannabinoids, but that don't interact with cannabinoid receptors. Although these compounds may not interact with cannabinoid receptors, they often do interact with non-cannabinoid receptors that many cannabinoids also show affinity for, like GPR55, TRPV1, the PPARs, and others. Some examples of endocannabinoid congeners that have been more thoroughly studied are N-palmitolethanolamine, or PEA, and N-oleolethanolamine, or OEA. Both PEA and OEA are currently sold in the United States as dietary supplements. And then finally, there were other molecules which have uh, uh, different uh, uh, biochemical uh, pathways as the endocannabinoids, but are nevertheless, uh, they're not congeners, they're not like cousins, uh, they're, not, they're not like brothers and sisters, but they're cousins. So, so you have yeah. other N-acyl uh, amides, uh, and in fact, um, when we collaborated with the, with the other groups, we, we found that in fact, um, in particular with the group of Michael Walker, the late Michael Walker, we, we found that many, uh, many compounds, many amino acids could make amides with fatty acids. And this could create uh, an almost uh, an incredible number of new combinations between the 10 or 15 fatty acids and 20 amino acids. So just, just imagine all the permutations. And, right. uh, and so these compounds actually exist as, as the group of other brands show as, as also uh, recently uh, investigated. And, and so it's really, we're talking now about a, a, a huge number of chemical mediators. So the endocannabinoids, their, con their congeners, their analogs, uh, which may or may have not different uh, similar bio biochemical pathways, normally have different receptors. We're we talking about the several other targets that anandamide and 2-AG have beyond CB1 and CB2. We're talking about other enzymes. So we're talking about something, something about more than 200, 250 chemical uh, mediators 
more than 50 enzymes and, and receptors. And some of these receptors were actually known previously, like the, the, the trip channels or the, or the PPARs. And, uh, and, uh, and the interesting thing is that, you know, of course, we, when the endocannabinoid system became so big, then the next question was, okay, uh, THC is the only out of 100 and more plant cannabinoids that interacts with the endocannabinoid system. What about maybe, maybe if we don't look only at the endocannabinoid system, but we look at the expanded endocannabinoid system, at this endocannabinoid, maybe the other uh, cannabinoids will interact with the endocannabinoid home even though they don't interact with the, the endocannabinoid system. This is true uh, to a large extent uh, uh, for, for things like cannabidiol or cannabigerol, uh, the other um, minor, not so minor anymore, uh, cannabinoids. Uh, and, uh, and in fact, in the case of cannabidiol, uh, even the endocannabinoidome is not sufficient to, to explain its pharmacology because it, it, it has been suggested to interact also with the with receptors and proteins outside the endocannabinoid dome, not just outside the endocannabinoid system, but even outside the endocannabinoid dome. So I think the endocannabinoid dome is a complex, uh, complex con uh, concept, which, however, has the merit of explaining the mechanism of action of a much higher number of, of plant cannabinoids than, than the endocannabinoid system. Along with talking to Dr. DeMarzo, I also spoke via email with the godfather of cannabinoid science himself, Dr. Raphael Mashulam. He shared with me that one of the areas of cannabinoid research that has him the most excited is looking at the activities of these endocannabinoid congeners, these compounds that are similar to anandamide and 2-AG in structure, but that are not formally recognized as endocannabinoids. Then there's another piece to this puzzle, and that's the role that non-lipid compounds in the body play in the endocannabinoid dome. For many years, researchers assumed that any compound that interacts with cannabinoid receptors must be a fat, because after all, phytocannabinoids are lipids, anandamide and 2-AG are lipids derived from fatty acids. This idea began to change when the concept of peptide cannabinoids, or PEPCANs, was proposed. Let's talk about hemopressin. Hemopressin is a peptide subunit of the compound hemoglobin, which you may have heard of. Hemoglobin is the molecule that carries oxygen and carbon dioxide back and forth around in your blood between your lungs and the rest of your body. Peptides, in case you didn't know, are chains of amino acids, and these amino acids have nitrogen in their structure, which makes them more polar and less lipophilic or in other words, more water-loving and less oil-loving. It turns out that hemopressin interacts with CB1 receptors, and what's more is that hemopressin and peptides like it can reside both outside and inside cells, so they can be extracellular outside or intracellular inside. Well, there are CB1 receptors located not just in the membranes of cells, but also in the membranes of some organelles, like mitochondria. That means that these non-lipid peptides could be interacting with CB1 receptors from within cells, possibly affecting how chemicals like anandamide or THC will bind to the receptor on the outside of the cell. But also these peptides might be interacting with different components involved in the actual signaling cascade that takes place when CB1 is stimulated, 
and these peptides might be changing what cannabinoid receptors are doing for these organelles, essentially changing the way that the functioning of the cell itself is being orchestrated. This finding is a big deal. The discovery that hemopressin interacts with CB1 receptors makes understanding the activity of these receptors ever more complicated. Plus, it opens up a new area of investigation. How many peptides interact with cannabinoid receptors? What did these activities look like? I hope by now it's clear to you that what we call the endocannabinoid system is very complicated, and the simplified way that we often talk about it could get us into trouble if we aren't careful. It's really easy to take the simplified idea of the endocannabinoid system and to then try to extrapolate those ideas to predict how a cannabis product might affect someone, for instance. But we really need to stop and take a moment to recognize how much work is still left to be done to understand how cannabinoids affect the body. As Dr. DeMarzo said, it'll be several lifetimes before some of these critical mysteries of the endocannabinoid system and the endocannabinoid dome are understood. The more we studied it, the more complicated it looked. So it, 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 I really like complicated things. Uh, I like things that can explain in, in a mechanistic way uh, things from you know, the, the, the functioning of a single cell uh, to, up to the behavior of a complex organism like, uh, like uh, laboratory animals and, and humans. So um, I still think that there is, we've probably done less than 10% or 15%. Uh, and uh, and one lifetime will not uh, be enough to 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 study it all. <laughs> I want to come back to this concept of the entourage effect. As we heard earlier in the episode, the endocannabinoid dome could be thought of as an evolution of the entourage effect. But it's important to acknowledge that this is not exactly the phenomenon that has become popularized as the entourage effect. And this idea was really not meant to be applied to the cannabis plant. It was reserved for activities that were seen with endocannabinoids and what we now call their congeners. So I asked Dr. DeMarzo what he thought about the evolution of the meaning around this term that he and Raphael Meshulam coined. Is it fair to say that the concept of the entourage effect has been a little manipulated in popular culture? to sort of take on a meaning that is different than what was originally intended? Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree. And, uh, and uh, both Rafi and I wondered sometimes whether or not uh, the, the entourage idea had not been kind of uh, uh, mis, 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 misinterpreted or misunderstood in, in, in many cases because, you know, it has been applied to, to cannabis and to the yeah. pharmacology of cannabis, which is a which is something that for a pharmacologist has really no meaning uh, because you cannot speak about the pharmacology of a plant. You can speak of the pharmacology of the, of the components, of the chemical components of the plant, and even that is, is quite difficult to, to do. So uh, clearly uh, the entourage effect as we conceived it was, uh, was, uh, was born to, to explain why anandamide and 2AG, 2AG in particular, it was accompanied by in tissues in, in blood in wherever we analyze it by congeners by by other monocyclisos which at that time were thought to have no receptor so they were orphan of receptors okay so we wonder why would the cell make 
uh, 2AG together with these compounds or anandamide together with the, its congeners if these congeners have no, uh, no biological action. That would be a waste of a, of a, of a biochemical machinery. Uh, and then, you know, uh, and he, he said, okay, maybe they are doing something to the main actor of, of the scene. And I thought that that something could be to retard their degradation, because uh, as, as I mentioned, both the enosyletanolamines and the monocyglycerols can uh, be degraded by uh, the same, the same uh, enzymatic uh, pathways as anandamide and 2-AG. So clearly, they can compete for their degradation by this enzyme. Mm. And through this means, they can enhance their, they can prolong their lifespan and then, then, uh, then enhance their activity. And this is what we found, and this is what we demonstrated in that paper. But then uh, we, you know, the concept went, went on forward. And uh, since for, for some of these compounds, it was really difficult at the beginning to find a receptor, we, we, we carried out other different kind of, of uh, experiments, for example, whether these compounds could act as allosteric modulators of the receptors. And in fact, we found that uh, one of them, palmitoylethanolamide, later on, uh, we showed would enhance the activity of anandamide at 3B1 channels. So these were really the early times of, uh, of uh, endocannabinoid research. And then uh, many groups, including the group of uh, Daniele Piomelli and, and others, showed that, in fact, these congeners were not inactive. They had their own receptors. And uh, these receptors, in some cases, did uh, things uh, quite different from, uh, from the CB1 and CB2, and in some cases, things even opposite. So the entourage effect was kind of uh, crushed by, by this idea, because if, if 2AG acts on CB1, and uh, by acting on CB1, stimulates food intake, stimulates fat accumulation, and its congener act on another receptor known as GPR119, which is, which is mm -hmm. doing exactly the opposite, there is no, no more entourage effect at the organismal level. Uh, so that was really something to be interpreted for the particular historical situation. And uh, I think it's still valid in some cells, for example, when because in all cells, these compounds are produced together with their in, in, uh, congeners, and not necessarily the receptors of these re uh, congeners are there. So when they're not there, maybe, and when CB1 and CB2 receptors are there, maybe they're actually acting as entourage compounds. The situation in the plant where it has been proposed that some terpenoids could enhance the activity of, of THC or CBD or that other phytocannabinoids could enhance the activity of THC or CBD is completely different. And, yeah. uh, and, uh, and uh, I don't know if there is an entourage effect in cannabis. Uh, I don't know whether it explains anything, if there is one. Uh, but uh, but clearly it's different from from what we did what we uh, conceived uh, in the 1990s with with Rafi. What does the endocannabinoid dome mean for clinicians? Does our immature understanding of the endocannabinoid dome limit a physician's ability to help patients address health and wellness issues with cannabinoids? While endocannabinoid research is shining light on many of the structures and functions of the endocannabinoid dome, there still is not a lot of human clinical data available. And sometimes when human trials do happen, the results actually contradict the assumptions that researchers made based on preclinical in vitro or in vivo studies. My initial feeling is that Despite the lack of detailed human studies, there is a lot we know about the very basic functions of the endocannabinoid dome 
that could help clinicians make more informed decisions with patients. After all, we know that cannabinoids and cannabinoid receptors are involved in basic physiological functions like reproduction, nervous system functioning, gastrointestinal functioning, memory and learning, cardiovascular health, and immune system functioning, among others. Just having that very basic understanding can help legitimize cannabinoid treatments and encourage physicians to take cannabinoid medicine more seriously and to pay attention to what their patients are doing more closely. When I spoke to the doctors, Knox, we talked about this issue specifically. I, you know, my response for a very long time now is that we have enough information, scientifically speaking, for clinicians who are already trained in anatomy, physiology, and pharmacology to make pragmatic decisions, very practical decisions yeah. along with that about what they should be using. It's, it's actually a lot simpler than people recognize. I think as soon as we start talking marijuana, people can no longer compute, they no, can no longer apply. There are years and years and years of, of education and ability to critically think. And I think that's one of the biggest problems right now. Um, you have more information on the science and pharmacology of cannabis and the, the physiology of the endocannabinoid system, both when it's functioning you know, uh, normally and when it's dysfunctional to make good decisions. We do. Um, so, you know, you, I think, Jason, you hit the nail on the head. Like, we don't necessarily need more and more and more studies. We'll benefit from them. Right. We'll benefit from them. They're going to be wholly informative, but we can no longer continue to shun anecdotal evidence as though it's not as important as mm -hmm. you know, the data that we can glean from these meta-analyses of these gold standard trials. If something does not work for a patient, it does not matter how many studies have demonstrated that this drug is more effective than the placebo. That's when we're getting into the N of one, right? Yeah. That, that, that patient's personal story and their personal history provide us the most valuable data at the clinical level um, that we can use to help make changes to whatever we're recommending, um, um, that will direct us, help them make sense of all those products that are out in the marketplace mm -hmm. that by and have not been made to make sense, like they have not been made <laughs> um, with using science to inform them. And so, you know, it's gonna take those of us who who, who recognize that we need to fill a gap mm -hmm. um, to step forward and do that. And we have enough information to confidently do that. And I get it, not, not all of our, our peers in the medical system, you know, have the audacity or the guts or the gusta or whatever word you wanna put in there the courage to step out on a limb and do it but patients and consumers are using cannabis now They're not waiting for the alphabet organizations to get on board states that legalized it even states that haven't legalized it or finding it and eventually they're going to come into a clinic or emergency room or you know a, a surgeon's office <laughs> or surgery and we healthcare providers are going to need to understand something about the endocannabinoid system and the pharmacology of cannabis without bias. We have to have that foundational knowledge. In a simple way, one thing that the endocannabinoid dome highlights is the importance of diet. As Dr. DeMarzo said, Many of the components of the endocannabinoid dome share similar or overlapping biosynthetic pathways in the body. 
Specifically, endocannabinoids and their congeners rely on polyunsaturated fatty acids as precursors. Some of the most common examples of polyunsaturated fatty acids are omega-3 and omega-6 fatty acids. Endocannabinoids and their congeners particularly rely on omega-6 fatty acids like linoleic acid to produce N-acylethanolamines and monoacylglycerols. In particular, these fatty acids are usually morphed into the fatty acid arachidonic acid before being further transformed into endocannabinoids or other types of arachidonal ethanolamines and monoacylglycerols. If the body is deficient in linoleic acid and it can't actually form arachidonic acid on its own, then arachidonic acid can actually become an essential fatty acid that needs to be supplemented. But generally that's not needed as long as plenty of linoleic acid is in the diet. Linoleic acid is an essential fatty acid. For clinicians, this means that understanding a patient's diet and their metabolic profile may be more important than ever. Even if a person is consuming a diet rich in these important polyunsaturated fatty acids, if they aren't absorbing much from their food, it's not going to do them much good. So even though we don't understand all the details about how the endocannabinoidome works, there is certainly enough known about it to give clinicians very good information to make informed decisions with their patients in order to actually take advantage of the endocannabinoidome to influence health. So where are we headed from here? As Dr. Janice Knox noted earlier, one of the areas of research that is particularly interesting involves exploring how the gut microbiome and the endocannabinoidome are connected. In fact, Dr. DeMarzo shared with me that his current research is focused on just that. In addition to better understanding the role of the endocannabinoidome in gut health, endocannabinoidome research is currently focused on examining the roles of endocannabinoid congeners as well as non-classical cannabinoids like cannabinoid peptides to try to understand how they are affecting things. Researchers are also very focused on understanding how changes to the endocannabinoidome could affect other really large systems like the human genome and the proteome, which is the entire system of proteins involved in physiological functioning. Some preliminary research has already indicated that cannabinoids can cause epigenetic changes to DNA, which then changes the expression of different chemical receptors as well as the production of different types of chemical messengers in the body. Additionally, Dr. Mishulam shared with me that he was particularly interested to see more research to understand how the endocannabinoid dome influences personality traits. Preliminary research indicates that cannabinoids do influence brain phenotypes, and it's likely that endocannabinoids also influence psychology and mental health through their interactions with the gut microbiome. The bottom line is that research is really just getting started. There's a ton to learn, which will ultimately affect the way we think about health and medicine for many years to come. And now, as we begin to wrap up, let's summarize some of what we've learned so far. The endocannabinoid system is a concept that arose in the late 1990s and has grown in complexity. Cannabinoid receptors were discovered in the late 1980s and endocannabinoids were discovered in the early 1990s. As researchers began to consider more and more chemical receptors and modulators part of the ECS, this new system called the endocannabinoidome was born. 
The endocannabinoid dome features hundreds of ligands, dozens of receptors, and a whole host of enzymes, far outpacing the original conception of the endocannabinoid system. Endocannabinoids work locally, affecting the cells and tissues where they're produced. This means that the endocannabinoids can do different things in different places throughout the body, essentially meaning that there are numerous interconnected endocannabinoid systems located throughout the body in all tissues. The endocannabinoid dome appears to be linked to the gut microbiome, and endocannabinoid researchers are now trying to understand this connection to better understand how lifestyle choices like diet and movement can be better leveraged to support health. Endocannabinoid congeners are compounds that are structurally similar to endocannabinoids, but do not interact with cannabinoid receptors directly. These endocannabinoid congeners often interact with other non-cannabinoid receptor targets that many cannabinoids also favor, like GPR55, TRPV1, and the PPARs. Non-lipids, like peptide cannabinoids, can sometimes interact with cannabinoid receptors. Because peptides are also intracellular, they can manipulate CB1 receptors in the membranes of organelles, like mitochondria. The endocannabinoid dome is heavily influenced by diet and digestion, as polyunsaturated fatty acids like linoleic acid are critical for forming precursors for endocannabinoids and their congeners. Understanding the endocannabinoid dome can shed new light on the mechanisms associated with various disorders and diseases to drive more targeted therapeutics in the future. The future of endocannabinoid dome research is likely to focus on the crosstalk between the endocannabinoid dome and other large physiological systems like the gut microbiome, the human genome, and the proteome. Future research is also likely to explore the role of endocannabinoid congeners in cannabinoid activities, as well as how the endocannabinoid dome influences things like human psychology and personality. But we're really just scratching the surface here. As the mysteries of the endocannabinoid dome unravel, it is sure to dramatically affect drug development and modern medicine. Already insights about the endocannabinoid dome are changing the way we think about immune system functioning, the gut microbiome, human psychology and personality, and more. You can also rest assured that as we learn more and more about the endocannabinoid dome, there will be companies ready to manipulate those understandings to sell you more stuff. Well, that's our show for today. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm Jason Wilson. Stay curious and take it easy. Special thanks to our guests that were so gracious in spending time with me to help build not just this episode, but other episodes throughout this and other seasons. You can find the show notes for this episode at cacpodcast.com slash episodes. If you want to learn more about cannabis, check out the Curious About Cannabis book, available on our website at cacpodcast.com book, or on amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, and other major online book retailers. The Curious About Cannabis workshops are coming soon. Check out cacpodcast.com events to learn about our 12-week workshop series that gives learners a unique crash course in cannabis and cannabinoid science 
taught by yours truly and featuring guest lectures from previous podcast guests and other industry experts. If you're looking for an intensive scientific introduction to cannabis, you've found it. Visit cacpodcast.com slash events to learn more. To support the show and get access to extended and exclusive episodes, early releases, merchandise and event discounts and more, visit patreon.com slash curious about cannabis. Stay curious and take it easy. We must work untiringly so that our children are obliged to learn the truth. Because it is only through knowledge that we can safely protect them.